0: The court has been incredibly hobbled trying to work with eight justices, and they have limped along, they have decided a few things, they've managed to punt on some of the others, but they're not facing the most difficult issues, I think. So I think that's a big lesson from this term.
1: For the Senate to just sit on a nomination, especially someone who is has qualified Justice Garland, really does a disservice to an equal branch of government.
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
3: Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also co-host another Legal Talk Network show, Law Technology Now, with Monica Bay.
4: And this is Craig Williams coming to you from a blistering, hot, sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, uh, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the world's leading cloud-based legal practice management software. Thousands of lawyers and legal professionals trust Clio to help grow and simplify their practices. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com.
3: Well, we've come to the end of another Supreme Court term. Immigration, affirmative action, abortion, guns, domestic violence, public corruption—only uh, a few of the topics that were addressed during this eventful and sometimes controversial Supreme Court term. These cases, uh, along with the vacancy caused by the death of Justice Scalia, have made this term in, an interesting one, to say the least.
4: And today on Lawyer to Lawyer, Bob, we're going to be discussing the end of the term for the Supreme Court. We're going to take a look back at the standout cases, last cases before the term ended, and as you noted, the impact of the loss of Justice Scalia in The Consequences of One Less Justice, the nomination, and looking forward to the start of the next term in October.
3: And helping us do that today, we have two guests who are very knowledgeable about the court. First of all, let me introduce Tony Morrow. Tony is the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal. Tony has covered the court for more than 30 years During his tenure, Tony has also written about the First Amendment and uh, also writes about food and reviews restaurants for various publications. He lives in Alexandria, Virginia, with his wife, Kathy Cullinan, and his daughter, Emily Morrow, who lives nearby in Arlington. Welcome back, Tony Morrow.
4: Great to be with you. And Bob and Tony, our next guest is Susanna Sherry. She is the Herman O. Lowenstein Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University Law School. Her writing focuses primarily on constitutional law and on procedures and doctrines of the federal courts, including the Supreme Court. She is the author of seven books, including four textbooks and more than 75 articles. She received her A.B. degree from Middlebury College and her J.D. from the University of Chicago Law School. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Susanna.
0: Thank you it's nice to be here,
4: great, well, Tony, since you do the reporting on the Supreme Court, can you give us a little bit of a summary of uh, some of the highlights of what happened this last term
1: well certainly the the most uh, important and transformative event of the term was uh, came unexpectedly on February thirteenth when Justice Scalia died. He had had some health problems, but I think nobody expected him. Uh, to go so quickly, and it was a real loss, no matter what you think about his uh, ideology or his personality, he had an enormous and outsized impact on the court, oral arguments, everything. And to have him gone, just as uh, the justices always say that when a new justice arrives on the court, it becomes a new court, Uh, I think we learned this past term that when a justice departs and is not replaced, you also have a new court. From that singular event flowed a real uh, shift in the court's uh, jurisprudence, in the sense that we had four four-four ties. We're going to talk about that later, I'm sure. But and then, in certainly some of the cases that uh, we'll talk about from the end of the term, uh, we had much more uh, liberal results, so to speak, than were were expected at the beginning of the term. But certainly, Justice Scalia was his death was. Was really important. I, I and I'll, I won't go on too long, but I just remember how often I would go to an oral argument at the Supreme Court, and I'd come out thinking, "Gee, the court is going to go in this direction for sure. One side is going to win, and this is how they're going to win." And then I look at my notes, and I would realize that it was basically just a Scalia who was going in that direction, and maybe not any other justice. It just he had such an overwhelming influence over the oral argument and everything else at the court that uh, he could sort of create momentum single-handedly at the court, and now now he's gone.
3: Susanna, what about you? How would you characterize the term? Was What did you see as a dominant theme if there was one?
0: Well, I certainly agree with Tony that Justice Scalia's death made a huge difference. Um, I count at least six cases that probably were directly affected and others might have been indirectly affected. I think one of the things to think about, though, one of the things that made this term different is that Justice Kennedy took the lead even more than he has before. Of the cases that were uh, divided, that is, cases that were not unanimous, something above 95% of them, Kennedy was in the majority. And so that's a really high number. And I don't think that would have been true necessarily had Justice Scalia still been on the court. But that's another aspect of what happened. It's, it's partly uh, Justice Scalia's death and partly that Justice Kennedy really took the lead.
3: Well, and someone else who maybe took a more prominent role than he had in the past was Justice Alito. Isn't, isn't that fair to say? Not, not necessarily in the majority, but in representing uh, the conservative wing of the court.
0: He did. He took Justice Scalia's place in terms of writing some very sharp dissents. They weren't as personally cutting as some of Justice Scalia's dissents had been, but they were long and they were very sharp and very well-reasoned, Justice Justice Scalia's were often. And so I think you're right. I think Justice Alito is uh, in some sense moving into Justice Scalia's place on the right wing of the court.
1: I think uh, just to add to what Susanna said, that Justice Thomas is also moving in that direction too, uh, not not as visibly or uh, vocally as Justice Alito, but uh, certainly Justice Thomas, uh, you could almost think that he was uh, channeling Justice Scalia in a couple of instances, and in particular in one case in which Justice Thomas uh, asked a question. It was the first time in 10 years that he had asked a question during oral argument. It was uh, right after Justice Scalia died, and it was a case that had, at least tangentially, a Second Amendment right to bear arms issue involved, and he... Invoked the Second Amendment, uh, which is certainly something that Justice Scalia probably would have done if he was uh, at the argument. Uh, So I think there was some uh, movement jockeying on the conservative side as well as on the other side as a result of Justice Scalia's death.
0: But I do think that something that Tony said earlier about uh, Justice Scalia having, in some sense, an outsized influence limits the ability of the other justices uh, on the conservative side. Uh, I think Justice Scalia had an influence on some of his colleagues, in particular Justice Kennedy, that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and Justice Roberts either can't do or won't do. They're not likely to put the kind of pressure on Justice Kennedy to, to go in and talk to him and try to persuade him in the same way that I understand that Justice Scalia did. And I think the one case where that made the most difference is the Fisher case from the University of Texas affirmative action case where Kennedy for the very first time ever voted to uphold an affirmative action program. And I wonder whether he would have voted that way had Justice Scalia still been on the court.
4: It looks like the nomination of Merrick Garland is really stagnant in Congress and not going anywhere. What effect do you think he would have if he were a justice, and if he's not going to be a justice, who do you think we're looking at in the next term, depending on the president that well, we get?
1: Well, uh, just these are all imponderables or speculative, but uh, it certainly there are some cases where um, if Merrick Garland had been confirmed, for example, in the uh, immigration case, which was argued after Justice Scalia died, if there had been a ninth justice, that might have turned out differently, I think it seems very unlikely that we're going to have a ninth justice any time next term, uh, or at least during the oral argument season between October and April. Unless something happens during the lame duck session of Congress uh, before the new Congress and before the new president is sworn in, whoever that might be, I don't see much action on Merrick Garland's nomination happening before then.
3: I've seen several commentators say that, most notably Erwin Chemerinsky writing in Los Angeles Times, saying that the court's conservative era is over. Isn't it a bit premature to say that until we know what happens with the next nomination?
0: I think it's definitely premature. Um, I do think, however, that Garland may be confirmed yet. If Hillary Clinton wins the election in November, the Republicans in the Senate may decide that Garland is a better justice than whoever clinton might be likely to nominate and they might in the lame duck session decide to confirm him uh... i think that probably would have changed if he had been confirmed it would have changed some of the cases but not very many and i also think that garland is fairly conservative on some issues. He is not going to be the kind of liberal that, say, Justice Ginsburg or Kagan or Sotomayor are on criminal cases or on business cases, civil procedure cases. Uh, But I think, for example, if he'd been on the court, if he'd been confirmed this term, the court would not have sent the ACA contraceptive mandate case, would not have had to send that back, being unable to decide. I count that as a 4-4, even though technically it wasn't. I think he would have upheld the contraceptive mandate. So on some cases, I think his presence would have made a difference. But I think in some of the other cases, it would not have. I
3: wonder if we could talk, Tony, you mentioned the 4-4 the four, four, four cases, <laughs> and uh, maybe one of, the, one of the most significant of those was the United States versus Texas uh, dealing with President Obama's uh, executive order deferring deportations. I mean, what was the impact of these 4-4 four, four ties and these rulings? How significant were these?
1: Well, certainly that one was had the most impact in the sense that, you know, millions of people in the United States would have been affected by the program President Obama promulgated as an executive action in terms of delaying their deportation. And to have it decided, no matter what you think about the merits of the case, to have that policy basically kicked to the side of the road based on a 4-4 tie without uh, without any guidance or without any opinion that states what was wrong with the program. It's just not the way to do business. But that's how it happened, and it really did have an impact already. Uh, we, we don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but, but it was... Um, quite a shock. And in the sense that uh, as the, the term wore on, it seemed like it was maybe they were struggling to find a solution that wouldn't result in 4-4 tie, but in the end, they couldn't do it.
4: Most criminal defense attorneys would tell you that almost every ruling out of an appellate court or a Supreme Court generally goes against the criminal defendant and true to form here in the Fourth Amendment case this year, but not true to form on the public corruption case of McDonald. Just from a generalized perspective of tough on crime. How do you distinguish the two of those cases?
0: Well, I think tough on crime is really not the way to describe this court. Um, They have, in not just this term, but in prior terms as well, the court, including the conservatives often, are very strong in protecting certain rights and not as strong in protecting other rights, as you say. On Fourth Amendment questions, the defendants often lose. The court is often willing to either find exceptions to the Fourth Amendment or find that it doesn't apply in particular situations. But it's not just the McDonnell case, uh, which cut back on uh, prosecutions for corruption uh... there was a case that cut back on prosecutions under the armed career criminal act which ha- the court has been doing for a while uh... the court struck down uh... warrantless blood tests for drunk driving uh... the court said that it's earlier ruling from a couple of years ago that states cannot impose life without parole on juveniles automatically without a hearing uh... the court said that that case uh, applies retroactively, which means it applies to all juveniles, uh, all people in jail now who were convicted as juveniles under such a law, even if all their appeals are done. Uh, So there's really been quite a few areas where the court is defense-friendly. The Fourth Amendment is, as you say, not one of them.
4: I was going to turn to Tony and ask about guns and the domestic violence cases in Maine, about the uh, ban of U.S. guns for domestic violence. what, And the national debate right now on gun control and Congress going two different directions and the, the murders and the mass murders we've had. Tony, where is the Supreme Court headed on gun control and, and on the gun issues that it faces?
1: Well, that that decision that you're, you're mentioning, which was the Voisin case, uh, does signal that the court is... Uh, Well, it has certainly recognized the Second Amendment right to bear arms. It doesn't mean that that overwhelms all other laws that seek to punish people for having firearms or seeks to prohibit them from having firearms based on prior convictions. And that actually was that was the case where Justice Thomas asked his questions. He he raised the Second Amendment issue is it really constitutional to deprive somebody of a constitutional right for life based on basically a misdemeanor conviction? Uh, But as it turned out in the decision, he was the only justice who expressed that concern. Uh, And so the court was ready to kind of move on and allow some of these laws to continue. Uh, I just want to add one thing to to what Susanna was saying about the criminal cases. And there really does seem to be a trend among the justices, uh, that they are expressing more and more often their frustration with prosecutors, federal and and state, in terms of overreaching, you know, the cliche that a good prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich. The justices are very uh, attentive to cases where prosecutors hide exculpatory evidence, where they overreach, where they Expand the interpretation of laws, and that that certainly was the case in the McDonald decision, where they basically said that uh, this former governor McDonald was being prosecuted for acts that politicians take every day uh, in service of uh, suggesting arranging a meeting with government officials uh, and uh, a donor to their campaign. The court said, you know, if we regard that as something that you can be prosecuted for or indicted on, uh, then, you know, politics as we know it will grind to a halt. So that, I think, is another major threat that influences the court in, in criminal cases.
3: We need to take a short break for a few words from our commercial sponsors. Please stay with us, and we will be right back to talk more about the Supreme Court term.
4: Clio is an invaluable software solution for law firms of all sizes, handling all the demands of your growing practice from a single cloud based platform. Clio enhances your firm with features such as matter and document management, time tracking, and even billing. Clio is an effortless tool that helps lawyers focus on what they do best practice law. Learn more at Clio.com. That's C L I O.com.
3: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, And joining my co-host, J. Craig Williams, and I today are Tony Morrow, the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal, and Susanna Sherry, the Herman O. Lowenstein Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University Law School. And uh, Susanna, I wanted to just kind of throw it to you to uh, ask you what cases really stood out to you this term. What were the blockbusters? Uh, I mean, I know what what the media is reporting as them, but what, in your opinion, were the, were the key cases?
0: Well, I think the most important case was the whole women's health case, the case that struck down uh, Texas's two uh, abortion limitations, and that's for two reasons. One is that it really reinvigorated. It's, it's the most important case since the Planned Parenthood, since Casey in 1992. It really uh, reinvigorated what's called the undue burden test, and it made clear that states cannot place burdens on access to abortion uh, under the pretext of protecting women's health, that in fact, if they're going to restrict abortion, if they're going to place uh, restrictions, uh, limitations, those regulations really have to benefit women's health and in this case the burdens were substantial and the benefits were negligible to non-existent so it's really important in terms of what it says going forward generally about how the court and lower courts are going to approach regulation of abortion but there's also uh, something like a dozen states that have very similar regulations that have been passed recently some of them are currently being challenged And I think all of them will now be held unconstitutional. So that's one of the most important cases. Uh, And I think the other uh, really important case is the affirmative action case, Fisher, sometimes called Fisher II. Um, And it's mostly important for what it didn't do. That is, it is mostly important because if it had gone the other way, uh, it would have cut back on affirmative action. What it basically says is business as usual when it comes to affirmative action, that universities uh, can engage in any kind of affirmative action program short of quotas, and it will be constitutional. Uh, I think the takeaway lesson is the more opaque your admissions program is, the more likely it is to survive uh, constitutional scrutiny. But I think those are, are probably the cases that will have the most effect. Now, if the immigration case had actually been decided as opposed to a 4-4 affirmance, then I think that case would also be one of the most important. But since the Supreme Court didn't end up doing anything, it's hard to call it important.
4: And so how is it that we look forward to the Supreme Court this coming October when we get a new justice after the presidential election? How will a conservative justice swing the term, and how will a liberal justice swing the term?
1: Well, there's another consequence of Justice Scalia's death is that I think the Supreme Court has held back on granting review for next term in major constitutional issues because of the uncertainty of whether when or whether a ninth justice is going to arrive next term i think they just have decided why waste everybody's time and why get everybody all agitated about big constitutional cases coming up and let's just put it off uh, the justices are quite content with denying review in certain cases on the belief that the issue will come around again in a future case, uh, so nobody is harmed. I'm not sure I agree with that proposition, but that's how they view it. So the short answer is there really are very few major cases that the court has already agreed to hear next term. One case that he granted just the other day at the end of the term is a case involving um, housing discrimination and whether cities can sue banks for predatory lending practices you know, on behalf of their citizens. Uh, the banking industry is arguing that cities cannot be proxies for individuals, uh, so that's a, a pretty high-stakes case. But the other cases that I've seen are mainly in the intellectual property area, and that's a perennial topic for the court. But I don't see them as big, really being big issues, big cases at this point.
0: I agree with Tony that the court, I think, is holding back. Um, they're behind schedule. They usually have granted more cases, agreed to hear more cases by now, but there are a few cases, I think. They've, they've got several uh, racial gerrymandering cases. Uh, they've got a, a racial jury bias case. Uh, and they've got an interesting case about gender discrimination, about uh, citizenship. The foreign-born children of unwed citizen mothers are treated differently than the foreign-born children of unwed citizen fathers when it comes to proving citizenship. So there are, I think, a few uh, interesting constitutional cases on the docket already for next year.
3: I wanted to ask one thing we haven't really talked about. Tony just mentioned intellectual property in terms of the upcoming uh, docket, but there were a couple of cases this year, particularly dealing with with damages, uh, I guess, in patent infringement cases. How did business fare in these cases? Uh, Either of you care care to speak to those cases and what they decided?
0: Well, often businesses on both sides of the intellectual property cases. It's usually not the little guy against some corporation. So I I think to say that whether business fared better or not is impossible to say. Um, Yeah,
1: that's a good point. The court
0: has taken quite an interest in intellectual property uh, over the last five years or so. And I don't think that anybody sees much of a pattern to it.
3: Except that maybe the federal circuit isn't to be (laughs) relied on. (laughs)
1: That's right. They they, They reverse
0: the federal circuit every time.
1: That's just about every time. That's
3: right.
1: Yeah.
4: How has generally the Ninth Circuit done this uh, term? There has been some terms in the past when it was almost considered malpractice in California not to appeal a Ninth Circuit decision.
1: (laughs) I haven't seen the statistics, but there are other circuits like the Sixth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit that are competing with the ninth as the most overturned uh, so I, I don't think the ninth circuit is quite as rejected
3: well we are just about at the end of our time for the program and this is uh, the point at which we'd like to give each of you an opportunity to uh, share your final thoughts uh, and also if you'd like to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you you're welcome to do that so uh tony why don't we start with you how would you uh, kind of wrap up this term
1: well i think uh, my thought would be that the political branches really need to pay attention to what has happened this term uh, in terms of the operation of the Supreme Court. I think having eight justices is uh, not a great thing for the court. There actually have been some commentators who have said are sort of getting used to it and saying that uh, maybe it's not a bad thing for the court to rule narrowly and not in sweeping ways, but... I think, as a practical matter, it really does make a difference to have an eight member court. And uh, to have for the Senate to just sit on a nomination, uh, especially someone who is as qualified as Justice Garland, it really does a disservice to an equal branch of government. Uh, and as far as how to reach me or how to find my stories, we have uh, registration walls and paywalls. Unfortunately, it sometimes but uh, you certainly can find my articles at NationalLawJournal.com. That's the best way.
4: Great. Thank That's you, Tony. It. It's always can a I... pleasure to have you on the show. And Professor Sherry, can we get your final thoughts as we wrap up the show?
0: Well, first, I agree with Tony that the court has been incredibly hobbled trying to work with uh, eight justices. And they have limped along, they have decided a few things, they've managed to punt on some of the others, Uh, but they're not facing the most difficult issues, I think. So I think that's a big lesson from this term. Uh, And I think the other lesson from this term is that it's not always easy to predict what the court itself or any given justice will do by ideological viewpoint. Um, Justice Kennedy, of course, is Famous for not necessarily always voting one way or the other. Uh, But there were cases in which Justices Thomas and Sotomayor dissented together. There was a case in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Sotomayor dissented together. So there are a lot of mismatches, might we say. We shouldn't assume that every conservative justice always votes conservatively and every liberal justice always votes liberally, and you can predict how a case is going to come out. And I I think that's been true over the years, and this term showed it very, very truly. Um, As for reaching me, you can reach me through the Vanderbilt Law School website. My bio is there, my CV is there, and my email is there.
3: Well, you've been listening to uh, Tony Morrow, the Supreme Court correspondent for the National Law Journal, and Susanna Sherry, the Herman O. Lowenstein, professor of law at Vanderbilt University Law School, giving us their perspectives on the just completed Supreme Court term. Thanks to each of you for taking the time to be with us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Great.
4: Well, that brings us to the end of our show.
3: Bob, take it from here. Craig, I hope it gets cool for you out there in California. To all our listeners, thanks for listening, and please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal thinking, lawyer to lawyer.
2: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic,